In this episode of the podcast, we meet Steve Malia, who is a partner at OpenView Ventures, a venture capital firm located in Massachusetts. Steve works with OpenView portfolio companies to identify and recruit high-impact senior executives and board members. Prior to OV, Steve was a principal at TrueSearch, a globally retained executive search firm. At True, he led executive searches across scaling venture and private equity-backed technology companies. So we're here with Steve Malia with OpenView Ventures, um, you know, new friend of mine, uh, really getting to know their fund and, you know, understand, you know, what their thesis is. Um, but, you know, before we kind of get into the fund structure, you know, Stephen, number one, thanks for coming here. I know you're super busy, so really appreciate you uh, making time to uh, do some storytelling and talk about venture, talk about your background. Um, so again, you know, thanks for thanks for sharing uh, your, your your bandwidth and your time with us. Maybe we can kick off with um, you know just a little bit about your career and your background and how you broke into um, to recruiting, how that's evolved, and and um, you know how that's kind of evolved with um, with venture and you know your your journey into OpenView. Yeah, absolutely, and, and thanks for having me. Um, so interesting journey so far. I'm from the Boston area. I went to school out in New York at Union College. Um, the classic econ major, that was the closest thing I could get to business. It was the econ or engineering. I definitely didn't yeah. fall into the engineering bucket. So one econ, um, junior summer comes rolling around and say, hey, I have to get an internship or, or I'm never going to make it, right? So followed everyone else, chased the Wall Street dream, talked to a lot of banks. Uh, and in that networking process, um, I actually met someone who worked at Corn Ferry, who was the managing director here in the Boston office, didn't know anything about recruiting. All I know is that this person could potentially help me, um, you know, open some doors at these banks. So I went and sat down with them and said, hey, you know, here's my story. Um, here are some of the firms I'm talking to. Went on for about 45 minutes doing exactly what we're doing right now. And, you know, the person started laughing. So I said, oh, great. The person who's going to get me a job is now laughing at me. So, um, he said, Hey, you know, I, I hear some, you know, time and time again, everyone's looking to get right into wall street. You know, it's the only way you can break into investing or other industries. Um, you know, but that's, that's actually false. A lot of people are getting into different um, swim lanes, learning new skill sets. Uh, he walked me through executive recruiting, what came with that, how it's business, but more on the people side. And mm -hmm. I was hooked and Goldman Sachs was not calling me back at the time. So sure. um, actually ended up doing an internship with them that summer, started full-time post-school and Corn Ferry is the, the largest executive recruiting platform in the world. So they work with a majority of the Fortune 2000 companies hiring um, all C-suite functions you can think of across the board. Um, and doing it the longest. So that was great training experience. Um, over time at Corn Ferry, I got more and more exposed to the private equity practice and working with those companies, which was very different than the, you know, fortune 100 clients, a little bit more like the wild west at the time. So, yeah. um, you know, executive search has, has taken off. And one of the big things that was happening was people were spinning out of these large platforms and starting their, their own boutiques. One of those was, was true search. So, um, connected with one of the partners there who I used to work with the corn ferry and said, Hey, what are you doing over at true? Um, and said, listen, we focus exclusively on venture private equity backed businesses doing executive recruiting for those companies. And I said, that's exactly where I want to head. So left Corn Ferry, made my way to True Search um, about five years ago. At the time, they were a 50-person small executive search firm, just starting to do some work with Excel and Sequoia, some, some, you know, some flagship funds, um, yeah. but you know, a really competitive landscape still. And then they took off. They're now a top 10 global search firm, um, really catering to that group. They've stayed really consistent with that venture, private equity, back business group. So we did work anywhere from a seed stage, bank capital ventures, Sequoia company, up through series A through F with Insight, Excel, uh, open views of the world, and then into the private equity players as well with Vista and others. So um, great experience. I was part of the go-to-market practice there. So I did a lot of CRO and CMO work. Um, primarily for those growth stage businesses, um, did a lot, a lot of work with UiPath, One Password, um, a lot of these emerging businesses that have, you know, have now gone on to be very successful public companies. Um, really like the transformational stage of the business. In that time, got to work with a lot of VCs, um, both on, you know, the operating side for their portfolio companies, and then started to do a little bit of work on 
actually recruiting for the funds for their investment teams. So got to see yeah. how both sides work. Um, OpenView is always in my backyard. I always admired their portfolio and how they approached investing is definitely a unique model and, you know, timing lined up for um, this talent partner position, which I'm in today. So made the move just about a year ago, um, almost moved in March. And, you know, sure. obviously some things unfolded in March of 2020 um, that were unforeseen. So put it on ice and then actually officially joined in, in July when um, things settled just a little bit. So been with yeah. the firm since. That's really great. Maybe you can walk us through just some of the the differences with um, just tier one VCs trying to get in versus kind of what you've seen with just people getting in on their own. Because um, I know that there's kind of a, a lot more steps in the process when you go into a tier one VC. So in general, right, what are some of the things that um, you've seen as a pattern that that have that have helped people kind of get over the get over the hump and kind of go through the process? Is it and, and you and I were talking about this before, you know, it seems like the the concept of just the pedigree um, has has actually surpassed, right? So there's not really just um, the the top tier school that you went to, but kind of the whole package, right? Now now it seems like they're making people do a lot more um, interactive exercises. People are um, putting together an investment thesis, probably maybe in real time. Um, so I guess maybe could you walk us through? What to expect if somebody is applying to Sequoia and what you know, or or Excel, and what does it really take? You know, the ones that you see get uh, passed through. Um, you know, what what are kind of some of the the challenging steps that they have to kind of make sure they go through and be prepared for? Yeah, it's um, it's definitely evolving. I think it's very different fund to fund. I think everyone has yeah. their own approach, and um, you know, looking at. OpenView specifically. So, you know, we are getting larger around to fund six, but, you know, certainly have some, um, you know, years behind or funds behind um, the Excels and Sequoias of the world in terms of AUM. But, um, you know, for looking at OpenView, then kind of branching out to these bigger funds. So we're all B2B expansion stage software. So we lead series A and B investments, check size from anywhere from 10 to 30 million on average. Um, we cast a wide net across B2B. So you'll see anywhere from Datadog through to Calendly through to Exonian. So, you'll, you know, security, infrastructure, DevOps, MarTech, and we can go pretty broad, um, but we're very stage specific. And when we get involved with companies, so um, our deal team is structured with people who have experience and skill sets to really cater to both, um, you know, the diligence work and assessing of prospect companies and then working with those companies post investment. So, our deal team today, um, from a ladder perspective, is associate, VP, partner. There are varying levels of associates and different types of backgrounds within the associate class. Um, you know, for us, we have people who are skewing very heavily towards the diligence side. So that's like a diligence associate for us. Um, a lot of those people come from investment backgrounds or have some sort of skill set where they're working on finance teams to do a lot of the heavy lifting around. Okay, we have you know X amount of prospect companies. We need to do um, market calls, work with the, you know, any data we have, um, running a lot of those diligence processes and modeling. And then we have on the other side of the aisle is more of the sourcing focus um, associates. So people who really can come in with a venture experience or not, and really kind of come in with more of a fresh, fresh perspective and really personality, presence, communication style to work with founders, um, do quick reads, not be afraid to set up meetings, dig in, develop a relationship um, and develop that trust early on. So we're kind of stepping away from just the numbers and getting more interaction with founders. So a lot of teams are structured around it differently. Um, you know, yeah. For us, we have different types of associates and that's a lot to our focus on our stage and things like that. Um, it does, you know, in terms of the interview process from the diligence side, we have a lot of those cans put together, um, you know, an actual case study specific to, we'll give them, um, you know, some data from one of our portfolio companies, sign an NDA and say, you know, would you make this investment, run the model, tell us about the business, things like that. Um, yeah. It's really meant to get them kind of working on paper, talking, put a position in and stand by it. And on the sourcing side, we'll do something a little bit more interactive to say, hey, um, you know, what is a, a company you think open, you should go invest in? And obviously we're not looking for them to go find us the next data dog, you know, in that sure. week. But 
we want them to come back and say, Hey, you know what? I really like this space. Here's why here's a company mm-hmm. that I think is trending in the right direction, whether that be headcount or differentiated um, product, or you've seen other companies larger in the industry acquire a lot of companies. So we really, the idea there is to get them talking, right. And see if they have the confidence mm-hmm. and communication style to step in. So for us, we're looking for a lot of those things in our interview process. When you get to VP, principal partner, other funds, it, the game changes in terms of some of the skill sets you need to step in. Um, if you go to an Excel or Sequoia, I'm sure they're a little bit you know, deeper into if you're going to be focusing on their consumer group versus their B2B group, their early versus growth. So I think when you look at funds like that, that have gone to a multi-fund strategy, mm-hmm. they're going to try and push you into lanes where you're going to help round out those specific teams. Um, whereas other firms, you know, whether it be very small or kind of emerging to that level, will have different profiles that they can actually attract the team to round out what they have and to bring a full package investment team together. So it's very different fund to fund. Yeah. What, how far outside of venture have you guys hired? Like, have you brought in people from banking, consulting, from product management? Um, is there a little bit of open mind? Because, you know, some funds are pretty closed minded where they're, they're like, hey, you know, you need to have done some type of internship or um, have have sourced some deals. Um, so, you know, it sounds like you guys have a little bit of flexibility and you guys are open to people from different walks of life. Um, and, you know, th- those are the three personas that come to my mind, right? Like product management, uh, consulting, like, you know, somebody that's coming from McKinsey because they're, they're usually working with a lot of data sets and then possibly somebody from banking. But any other, you know, new types of personas that you're seeing break into venture and, and um, you know, how can people bridge the gap to, um, to, to kind of get closer to, to a better fit? Yeah. yeah, it's a great question. I think um, OpenView as well as other funds are um, looking for talent in a lot of different ways. I think yeah. you're, you know, spot on that. It's not just about pedigree, getting your three or four year Wall Street rotation and then stepping into these things. I think there's a lot of great talent out there um, and it comes back down to the entrepreneurs you're going to be working with and you're know, getting people to round your team. So for us, um, in terms of backgrounds, if you look at some people on the team, we do have people, um, some partners who, you know, if you look at Tom Hollihan, he came to OpenView, I think about two years ago now. He started his career more on the investment side, actually shipped in, in, in a bank, shifted to an operator role um, in more of a BD focused role at Datadog, mm-hmm. um, did that for some time, went to General Catalyst as an associate, but came in with more of that sourcing capability from having that sitting, you know, time in the seat as an operator, working with teams um, on the other side of the table, and then has since, you know, grown to become a partner over here at OpenView. Um, Caitlin Henry, uh, a VP on our team, was with um, Amazon and part of their product groups, you know, one of the profiles yeah. you flagged. Um, and, you know, she brings this whole, you know, fresh perspective and just her ability to connect with entrepreneurs is, is different, um, you, you know, than some people who come from strictly finance and look at the numbers, you know, I think being able to speak to product and space and look at teams, um, because you were part of those teams in the past yeah. is interesting to a lot of funds right now, um, across all levels. And, you know, I think for looking at an associate class, um, naturally you may get a lot of people coming from investment banks and or consulting groups that work with PE um, firms. I think for that, those associate roles, because they'll have some of that diligence experience to be able to step in and, and learn it. Uh, but that being said, we're, we're branching out, you know, out and finding different ways to bring in top sourcing talent. So um, for us, one of the new profiles we've thought through recently is, you know, can you go get someone who's early in tech as an operator who comes from even an AE background or someone who's really kind of developed um, BD or, or product shops um, yeah. who've gotten in front of and, and really can put their sales hat on, right? Because a lot of venture mm-hmm. today is is selling your firm, your money and, and making connections. So, um, you know, there's a lot of different ways you can find top talent. And I think a, another bucket we're seeing more of um, are people coming from corporate development teams, which is interesting. So there's a lot of ways you can get into that um, within a lot of different types of, of B2B software companies, but those people are going to be working really heavily on the diligence side. And then yeah. if you can combine that with a certain personality, you can have a really rounded, well-rounded investor. So I think more and more, you're going to see people come from different types of backgrounds. Operating backgrounds are 
definitely becoming more popular. Um, I did some work with Spark Capital on the West Coast years ago um, for their consumer team. And they were actually, for the most part, exclusively focusing on people coming from the operating side who can bring that perspective. Um, I've done some work for Information Venture Partners uh, in Toronto, a small fintech focused fund. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they skewed very heavily towards operator um, to round out their team. I think core of a lot of these flagship funds, they have the, the top heavy people who've been in the space a long time with really strong finance backgrounds. And yeah. now it's about getting kind of fresh talent in with, with you know, their own perspectives to round up the team. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, a point that you mentioned is really important. I mean, this is something that I've been kind of advocating a lot in the last few months, but to me, really sales is the most important skill in life. It's what gets you a job. Uh, like you said, when you're working with founders, um, there's a lot of investors to choose from, right? So how do they, you know, how do you convince them to take your money when they're oversubscribed? Um, there's been a few deals where I just felt super lucky that I even got into the deal and the founder let me in. Um, and I just tried to genuinely um, just build a friendship with them. Not even not even the cliche, can I be helpful, right? I mean, that's the meme, yeah. um, but I really just try to build a friendship. And I think that's part of sales is like relationships. And, you know, and then I would say some of the best deals that I got into is just because another VC, um, you know, told me about it um, as a friend. So, and I think, that relationship building is so important because you just won't get into any deals, no matter how quantitative you are or how great of a model you build. If you, if you build a model and you can't even get into the deal and the people don't like you, um, then I think you're kind of, you, you got, you're kind of handcuffed. Right. <laughs> so, um, so I think right. that's, I totally agree. I think that's, a, that's another persona that's super important. And, and it's, you know, the way that you engage with the, the hiring manager, the first impression that you make when you're interviewing, I think that's a big piece. Um, I would also say part of VC, and I, I'd say this is something that I'm constantly working on, is, is almost being a media brand. So I guess how important or how often do you, you know, kind of do a Google search on the, on the candidates to see if they've written any blogs, I guess, is that something that's interesting to you? And, you know, do you think it's helpful for people? And I guess this is just kind of pointed to, you know, some of some of the audience. Do you think they can get some brownie points if they have some uh, investment theses or if they even put together something that's related to uh, kind of the, you know, because I think I've seen on your website, you guys are focused on product-led growth. So maybe looking at their thesis on product-led growth and writing an article on that. Um, do you think that is helpful in kind of the whole package that they put together? Absolutely. Yeah. I think that just speaks to someone's interest and passion, yeah. right? I think we've come across some candidates over the last few months who are extremely impressive, mm -hmm. could clearly step in day one and do the diligence side or, or possibly, you know, get be trained to source deals. But, you know, I think a lot of people don't make it through to the, the final rounds in our, in our process. And a lot of it comes back to, um, you know, everyone says culture fit, but it's a really passionate team at OpenView. Mm -hmm. And, a lot of the times in, you know, I think one of the questions we ask and you'd be shocked at how people respond to this, but it's like, what gets you excited about our stage? Or like, talk to me about a company. And, you know, a lot of them, be like, you know, I, I'm just excited to really like work with founders, you know, and like, yeah, well, well what about that? You know, why sure. about this stage is just so pivotal to get capital at that mm -hmm. series A or B and like be able to like really, you don't have to have all the right answers around what's going on with these companies at the time, things like that. But Speak, be able to speak to specific examples of what gets you excited about a, you know, a company doing that one to 5 million push and some of the things they're going through that you like to help with or dig into in the business and looking at the landscape is, um, you know, whether you're junior or senior as an investor, you're going to have to have some level of interest somewhere. And, you know, for us, we cast a wide net across B2B. So if you say, listen, like I like looked at OpenView's portfolio and see that you, you invest in a lot of companies. I personally have been following fintech the last year, you know, around everything. I've followed, gone to these virtual events. I've done this just to show you're yeah. actually passionate about something goes really deep with the hiring manager. Because again, it doesn't mean you have to identify four great companies for us to go invest mm -hmm. in, but if we're betting on the fact that you're going to want to go hustle and find those companies. Yeah. Right. And then actually be passionate when speaking to those companies, um, you know, because you're, constantly around it and you're living and breathing it in your day-to-day. -day. So 
we had a, a candidate that got on our radar through a blog post. Um, you know, he had his own perspective on product-led growth and that was flagged by one of our partners and said, Hey, I actually gave this a read and was impressed. Um, we reached out and, and engaged with the, the candidate. So yeah. I think that can certainly help. Um, it doesn't mean everyone has to go become a professional blog writer tomorrow. Um, sure. But I think even being able to speak to blogs, things you follow, newsletters, you know, what's going to getting you excited about a space, that next layer is where you want to speak to and, and live in your kind of interview discussions. Yeah. Um, you can never be surface level and get anywhere in these processes. Sure. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of ways now. I think the, the, the bar is just getting higher every, I would say, six months, right? Before it was kind of like, hey, uh, put together an investment memo and here's your resume. But I've seen some people build like these, these dashboards <laughs> um, tracking yeah. different types of trends in, in Notion. And that has replaced like um, a pitch deck. I, you know, I also run like an emerging manager program and I got a bunch of doc sends, but there was one person that sent me like a notion, like interactive dashboard. And I was like blown away. Um, so I think, you know, I, I would not be surprised if somebody puts together some type of air table and it's the same thing, the blog, you know, it's one thing to kind of see something just posted like a couple of weeks ago and then no history, but there's ways for people to actually kind of live the VC um, lifestyle and, you know, constantly source deals. There's, so there's scout programs. Um, there's other ways that you can join angel groups uh, where you can just kind of source deals and post them and, uh, and get feedback. And I think, you know, as you do a Google search on that person, you can see the history that they've been tracking it for, um, you know, a few months. And then also, like you said, I mean, just knowing about the events and, and where those communities are, and being plugged in, I think that's a huge thing as well. So, yeah, and having a perspective, right? I think that's the thing too. Like, don't be afraid to have uh, an opinion and go yeah. with it. Like, it doesn't even have to completely align with an mm -hmm. investment thesis. You're the, with the partner you're talking to, right? I, I think if that was the case, if everyone had to agree at any venture firm or open view, there wouldn't be a firm, right? Yeah. And I don't think any great investments would be made. You have to have different perspectives. You have to have some you know, arguments along the way. Um, but people here will want you in the room if you can back it up and kind yeah. of show why you're interested and be able to speak to things. Um, it's too competitive right now to get into firms if you're not passionate about something and can back it up. So, and again, sure. that doesn't mean you have to be two, three, four years of experience and be able to speak to everything about fintech or health tech or DevOps. Um, but, and it could be multiple things, but being able to point to concrete examples of what you're following trends, things you're reading, things you, you know, participated in, in the space, that's what jumps out at hiring managers. It's not just like, Hey, you know, it looks like Datadog did awesome. Other companies in that space are probably going to do well too. You know, I mean, that's obviously an exaggerated example, but uh, you got to go deep. Sure. Hey, Tim, I think you had a question. So when you said uh, GMs, what does GM stand for? General managers? General manager. Yeah, that's right. Like a general manager background kind of territory, mm -hmm. whether it's like an Uber or a handy, one of those kind of platforms that uses the GM model. Absolutely. Yeah. I would look at um, Sparks Group, Excel on the consumer side, NEA, um, you know, in their Bay Area teams you're going to see a lot of those backgrounds um, from all different operating, um, you know, functions. I think that GM certainly, you know, GMs are depending on the size of the org can sometimes be many CEOs in their mind, how they think. Right. So I think right. you're going to see all sorts of operators get into venture. It's, it's more about the conviction than about why you want to get into venture. Right. Um, I think that a lot of people have made that transition and done very well. I mean, some of the top investors out there, were you know either multi-time founders, CEOs, or just parts of great runs. You know, I think a lot of the Spark team came from Twitter um, across, mm -hmm. and then some of them even early stage product or design uh, marketing. I think you know it's just how you want to position yourself as an investor, um, developing perspective on companies from what you've learned as an operator is your biggest tool there with that background. Sure. Very helpful. Thanks, Steve. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really helpful. Um, any other questions, guys? What, um, what are the questions you guys have? Maybe about the recruiting process. Um, 
I guess how important is the resume? Is that kind of the standard, you know, sub, you know, I guess when, when people submit and apply to a position, what are some of the artifacts that you like to see? Do you like to see some type of investment memo, you know, along with the resume, or do you usually just start with the resume and then, you know, kind of take the conversation a little more organically after that? Yeah, I think, I mean, you're still seeing resumes. Um, okay. You know, I think that's part of it. I think, you know, most people are on LinkedIn now. It's going beyond that. I think a lot mm -hmm. of firms are building processes to get to the core of things faster. So, I mean, yeah. I think you're going to have steps along the way. You know, I think, you know, being able to send a resume over, get your background, kind of laying out your story is important. Yeah. Um, and be able to speak to stops along the way. And kind of, mm -hmm. I think one thing that we tend to always dig in on and this is part of having a resume and just generally how you look at your careers, be able to go back and say, okay, like I did this and this is what got me here. Yeah. And even if it was a failed stop, that's fine. Um, but like learnings from that, what, what made you move to the next step? So I think being able to tell the right story behind where you're going, where you've been and where you're going is always key. And that sounds obvious, but a lot of people don't have to tell their story a lot. Um, you know, they get on these calls and, they're so focused on the question specific to the role sure. that when they're saying like, Hey, tell me about yourself. They get through it in like 45 seconds. And sometimes that's a red flag, right? Yeah. Like you kind of want someone to be able to say, Hey, like, you know, this is where I've been and to where I got to right now, us talking and why I'm excited is, is a pretty powerful piece of the interview process. Yeah. So definitely worth having the resume. Um, but you're going to have a process for us, you know, just for example, for our associate process, um, we'll do a combination of inbound applications as well as outreach. Um, and that's going to be across a lot of those buckets we discussed. We'll have a, um, you know, first screen or conversation. And really that first call is just interacting with the candidate, whether it be inbound, outbound source to someone that you want to talk to, to say, Hey, here's our story. So treat that as like informational, always have questions around funds, um, digging into like, Hey, what's the team look like today? Things like that, um, you know, are, are always a good sign that you're thinking about, okay, like, what am I joining, really? Like, sure. you can get into investment thesis and things down the road, but, you know, you want to always show that you're thinking about your career, how you're progressing, what that looks like um, at a platform. You know, definitely want someone to indicate that they're looking for a long-term home or, as you know, I don't know how you want to define long nowadays professionally, but, you know, certainly having those right buy signs and early conversations from there, you'll get into a little bit more of a formal interview. Um, for us, we have a partner kind of running point. And in those early discussions, you're going to have, um, you know, I'm just thinking about actually some of the questions up probably that, you know, you might get hit with. It's like, um, if you're at a current firm or what you're doing, you know, if you're working with deals, kind of what, a, you know, what was your role? Um, mm -hmm. You know, what was, you know, if you're looking at a company, what got you excited about it? What was the leadership sure. team like? What was exceptional about it? What were the biggest risks that you know, kept you up at night? Um, you know, all these things that kind of get you talking about some of the work you're doing day to day instead of just sure. the, I get in, I do this, I do that. Like they want to get into examples of what you're doing with actual live examples, mm -hmm. uh, case studies. So yeah. you're going to get into a lot of that up front and then kind of continuously <clears throat> move through the process mm -hmm. to dig into certain things along the way. And then always a formal onsite and typically a case. Sure. Yeah, I would say that's a good point. I mean, I think having live deals that are relevant. Um, so the people in our program have been successful, some of them that landed jobs, because every Monday we're bringing in deals, right? So um, yep. it's pretty handy because we have like a backlog of like five to six deals that when somebody's interviewing, they can they can kind of rapid fire and say, hey, this company is great. It's a $400 billion market size. Um, these are the five competitors that they have. And, you know, I know that competitor two is kind of doing this, but this is still why this company is going to win. Right. And, and it should be like a relevant, I feel like it should be a relevant company that you guys actually would probably maybe take a second look at. Right. And, and yeah. the smart people will do their homework to cater to the fund. Right. So they're not going to bring you guys like a life science deal. Right. It should be something right. that's um, related to what is kind of catered. And part of that goes back to emotional intelligence sales, right? So if you're going to, I had somebody, and this just goes back to um, just basic sales skills, right? I had somebody that was like um, an emerging manager that wanted to kind of join my program. And um, he was like, Hey, I'm going to take you to this, you know, this awesome steakhouse. And um, 
I, I luckily eat steak, I eat pork, I eat everything. And it sounded great to me, but what if I was like vegetarian, right? What if I did not care about steak? So it's kind of the same thing. So it's kind of like the sales skills and the emotional intelligence skills, like kind of prospecting, understanding, like um, targeting of leads, uh, making sure like it's a good fit. I feel like some of those skills like are just intangible, right? You can't, um, you can't just come in and, uh, and kind of go, go directly and kind of execute on those hard skills. So I think those are things that you probably read as well. And you probably catch that, you know, just in the first couple of discussions on like how thoughtful they are when they're um, answering these questions. So. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, so then we've got, okay, so we get another question here, Tim, it looks like you got a little paragraph here. You want to just rattle that off, that, that question you had? Yeah, happy to. <clears throat> yeah, so Steve, I guess, um, you know, if you've sort of been developing, you know, a resume and, and a background sort of with an operating career in mind, and you're just trying to, you know, make sure that you're putting your best foot forward for a venture recruiter and really like making sense and, and framing everything with that in mind, you know, just thinking about that, you know, is your reaction like start from scratch with that in mind and just, you know, completely redraft, like work with somebody who knows how to do that? Or, you know, it, I guess just talk me through how you would how you would think about that if you were making that kind of career switch. I would beef it out even more on the operating side, to be honest. Um, I would speak to the skill sets you've developed there, right? I, I don't yeah. think you should... Um, try and flag anything or, or speak to trying to position it to be more like investor approach or finance approach. I think cool. people really value, um, you know, I, I would really kind of bake in things of your day-to-day, -day, not specific even just to like what you're doing right for your function, but maybe exposure you're getting to other leadership too. Um, like if you're meeting with the CEO or group heads, cross-functional work, that's super interesting. So um, being an expert in a function or getting that experience and then really positioning yourself as someone who understands how to work in a company like on the operating side across multiple teams like a lot of investors Super helpful don't have that right so yeah. um, it's, it's something that sounds simple to you in your day-to-day -day. Um, yeah just even working with executive teams and you know new product launch and revenue revenue or sales or whatever it is you know a lot of the people sitting in investor seats today who came from just finance they, they don't, they don't know that world. Right. So I would sure. run that and really position. That makes a ton out. of sense. Thank you. Cool. Um, Pauline, you want to go ahead and ask your question. So Pauline uh, is an investment. She comes from like an investment banking background. So it looks like she had some good questions there. You want to go ahead and call that one out? Yeah. I'm like the quote unquote, the one with the finance background, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm just curious in terms of um, early stage versus growth stage, um, do they look for different skill sets or if for people with heavier finance background, would you suggest them to target more of a growth stage VC? You'll see both. Um, I think if you like looked at team backgrounds across early and, and growth and try to break down the percentage of people who got into growth from finance. So it'd probably be more, you know, I think that's just that stage of investing. You're, you know, you're, you are betting on entrepreneurs, operators, <clears throat> their story and space, but a lot of it is skewing, starts to skew towards the numbers. So as you kind of hit that series C and beyond D, like that growth equity into private equity, you're going to see a lot more finance backgrounds because that's a heavy part of the deal flow and deal process. Um, but on the same time that that still exists in, in early, right. I think it's just having conviction for what gets you excited about early. Um, and a lot of it's, you know, back to those things we talked about in terms of your interest in space, passion, being able to speak to what gets you excited about early stage companies. Right. And I think that for us, for these A and B deals, the expansion stage, which is still, you know, on the early side, um, you know, you're going to, you're going to have enough meat on the bone with these companies, data, revenue, to run a model, right? Like yeah. that's still a part of it, but it's going beyond that and balancing that with personal connection to founders, CEOs, thinking through spaces more strategically. So I, I think that um, it's just more of a blend of skill set the earlier you go. And then when mm -hmm. you go, I mean, seeds obviously a much different ball game, but 
um, you know, early stage investing, you, I don't think you have to limit yourself to one versus the other, but I think before you go into interview processes, one way or the other, realize what they're going to be digging in for. Uh, I think like, again, uh, early they'll, they'll really want to press you on, is this, you know, do you want to get into the stage that's going to be much more hands-on with, with founders and building? Yeah. Going back to the artifacts real quick, when you said models, what are some good models for these guys to, you know, warm up on? I mean, we go through uh, some of the, you know, the financial models. So going through like the three statement model, you know, modeling out kind of how much revenue they'll have. Um, you know, we've done a couple like revenue and churn models that have been helpful. And then um, some cohort analysis. Those are some things that we've looked at. But any other models that um, maybe we should brush up on or just be aware of to kind of just be prepared and and especially in the real life, right? When you guys are working on some of these more late stage deals, when there's more meat on the bone, as you said, uh, what, you know, any other additional, uh, you know, spreadsheets or models that they should brush up on? Honestly, those are all great. I, I yeah. actually think, um, so I actually asked that question. I, I have not done financial modeling myself. Sure. Obviously come from recruiting. So I can't speak as if I know everything there, but um, when we started, when I started helping with interviewing candidates with the investment team, I said, Hey, like how, how hard should I really assess them and, and push on the modeling skill sets? And yeah. a lot of the, you know, a lot of the feedback I got was, um, you know, the, the modeling you can do in venture isn't really as, um, I don't know, I'll put the right additive on this. I think some of the models you do with banks yeah. and outside of venture actually will probably be a little bit more challenging, a little bit more built out. I think mm -hmm. the modeling skills you need to step into venture and learn it and, and kind of grow on that um, isn't as complicated as, as you would think. Um, so a lot of it is like what you, you know, what you just described yeah. and being able to look at data sets, um, run the model, a lot of it around the revenue, looking at, you know, turn rates, things like that. But a lot of that can be taught. Yeah. Um, but I think that you will run models probably more in over longer periods of time as you get to later stage investing. Right. Yeah. I think that it's just those, a lot of deals are starting earlier. So on the venture side and on the early stage investing, you know, a lot of the deals, um, you know, that, that relationship starts with just this, right. You're getting to know yeah. the founder team story mission, learn about the space. You're doing some customer calls. The diligence goes beyond sometimes just the numbers, your market research, talking to customers, um, figuring out as much as you can about the space, taking what you can from, you know, the, the data they gave you at one point in the deal, typically towards the end, um, and be able to build a case for, Hey, this company's growing at this rate. Here's where we see them going, et cetera. Um, as you get towards growth and PE, you're going to have much more of that data earlier to go off of. So a lot of these companies are going to be, you know, I just had a more, more mature revenue scale. So, yeah. um, it will vary. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Yeah. I mean, and there's, um, there's a lot of stuff on the internet that people can, you know, download and play. I mean, some of the best models I'd say I've built a bit have been just kind of from scratch. Like there was one that I did ad hoc during like a lecture a couple of weeks ago. And it was um, just assuming how much the evaluation would increase. And then also the um, it was the revenue. So kind of the revenue multiple and then the valuation, it was really simple math, but it's kind of cool to kind of lay it out. So some of the things you can just kind of, you know, do ad hoc and kind of build some creative models based on different assumptions. And to your point, you know, sometimes it's, it's imaginary numbers, right? It's, right. it's stuff that could potentially happen in the future. And even when you look at valuation, it's paper gains, right? So it's not real, not real money until there's a real IPO. So that's right. Yeah. And you'll have multiple, um, you know, you can have your, use like a baseball analogy, your, your single double, triple home run kind of uh, modeling where you're saying like, Hey, here's, worst case, here's likely, mm -hmm. here's, you know, um, kind of the stretch, you know, you're going to be able to run certain models to kind of pitch the company yeah. to the investment committee at your firm, um, you know, which is a whole different process. But yeah. I, yeah, and I used to be intimidated by it in the beginning. And then I just started turning into a data nerd. I started kind of just kind of playing with it and, and diving in and it's not, it's not as bad as, um, you know, you think in the beginning. So um, cool. So Keith, Keith has got a question. So Keith has some experience at a venture studio. So I think that's interesting too, because he's kind of like incubated businesses and then um, helped them scale. So, you know, I thought he had an interesting background as well, but Keith, I guess you have a question here. You want to just shout your question out? 
Yeah, so this was actually more about the PLG model that you guys are investing mm-hmm. in. Um, and I was actually wondering, you know, what makes it so crucial for PLG companies to hit that $10 million mark? And what exactly changes around that? And then do you see any limitations around the different industry verticals? Like you can't exactly put in a PLG model in something like industrials, right? That's a good question. Um, so we, I mean, a lot of the companies we invest in naturally are at that stage specific to, you know, A to B, one to 10 million ARR. Um, You know, for us, we invest in PLG companies, we invest in some, you know, non-PLG companies. I think it's Mm -hmm. more, um, PLG is really more specific to like the go-to-market playbook um, and approach with your product versus um, others. And that's what we're finding is becoming really just a a dynamic um, playbook in the market to date. So you'll see PL, successful PLG companies cross verticals. Um, and so if you think of Atlassian was probably like the flagship one. Um, and, you know, I think of Slack, even think about how yeah. you use Slack, right? You can use it as a consumer. Um, and then you, you know, you and I start using it at work because we're chatting during the day, then all of a sudden this whole group's using it. And then your group leader says, how are you guys all talking during the day? And then brings it to your president or CFO to say, Hey, we should be using this as our company communication. Right. So it's around the virality and the product, um, effectively sells itself, um, you know, at those earlier stages. So, you know, that's an extreme example, right. With Slack. And if you look at Calendly, one of our portfolio companies, um, I send you my Calendly link. Great. And then I, you know, you're like, Oh, what's Calendly. So now you're using it. And then, you know, you're going to be using it across multiple invitations, groups of friends, teams, companies, firms, Mm um, what's, pivotable in these, you know, in these proclaimed growth companies is that, you know, take a security business like sneak or security DevOps, but some of these industries like industrials or security in general has been these old school enterprise selling deals on the golf course, sales leaders, um, and how they approach, um, getting deals and six figure deals over the finish line with these customers that can still exist. You can implement product-led growth best practices earlier in a sales cycle and how you approach the market. And really that's just to show value of your product earlier. So can you get an enter- someone in an enterprise or enterprise level company to see your product, do a free trial, kind of like remove the friction of the sales process as you build up that account to be a future enterprise level account. So you're going to see more old school industries adopt product like growth habits and strategies in their go-to-market and then combine that um, you hear like land and expand. So can you get a lower ACV, ACV deal contract through more product-led growth initiatives, but bank on growing that account over time, right? So yeah. it's more of a transformational kind of player we're seeing in the market with companies. How do you guys get over like the hurdle in the beginning of all the revenue loss that isn't happening? So, yeah, I mean, they're, you know, it's the one thing they're very cost efficient product growth businesses because mm-hmm. you don't have to go hire 50 sales reps to go close deals. Right. So it's, yeah. um, you know, it's a, as from an investment standpoint, it's a very attractive business on paper. We look at the financials just because, um, you know, that again, that you're not, your spend is really around product, right? So you're investing engineers, mm-hmm. product managers, you want your product to sell itself. So it needs to be the best experience um and your you know ux design needs to be really kind of almost catered to like a consumer approach right if you want someone to use it um and have it be user-friendly easy you know take seconds right so a lot of the companies are focusing on that and they're actually because they're so capital efficient one of the hardest i think one of the biggest challenges of product like growth growth businesses like accountly is that a lot of the times early on in their growth they don't need your money um, yeah. you know, so it's like, Hey, like we're doing fine just now. So you'll see a lot of these PLG companies be bootstrapped for longer, mm-hmm. um, cause they don't need to, you know, clog up the cap table early. So, um, it's a really interesting play. It's continues to evolve. You're going to see more and more companies do it. Um, I can send over Joel, our, our product led growth, um, you know, map, uh, Lumascape, which is really interesting. Again, it's cross vertical, um, mm-hmm. And if anyone ever wants to talk about it, I'm happy to chat. I'll put it in here. But oh, nice. 
Thanks. You're seeing a lot of different companies adopted across a lot of different verticals. So yeah. Oh, wow. This is really cool. Yeah. This is a really huge, expansive overview. So this is kind of the whole landscape of product-led growth. This is great. Yeah. And you'll see on the left PLG like maturity. So a lot of the mm -hmm. companies at the top will be people who've really adopted product-led product growth um, yeah. playbooks, but towards the bottom, they're trying to implement it, right? Where they're putting it into yeah. the playbook. So um very interesting. No, this is great. Yeah, this is really helpful. Um, Do you have any like bad examples by any chance, Steve? Any what? Any bad examples of product-led growth companies? Oof. This is being recorded, so I don't know if I want to say Honestly, <laughs> uh, top, of, top of mind, I, I don't have a specific example. I think mm -hmm. there are certainly companies that who you know may try and adopt PLG in the wrong way. Like PLG is not easy, right? Almost yeah. to your point earlier, some, some industries, there needs to be some component of sales. Um, if you're going to go yeah. sell to a government enterprise level customer, um, you know, they very little, you know, low chance. Um, there may be some, you know, frictionless component of them just going to try your product for free and buying it. Right. They're used mm -hmm. to having these two, 300 K, ACV um, deals brought to them, go through a lot of hoops, six to eight month sales cycles. So um, I think it's, you know, there, there are companies who do it great out of the gate. And I think that you'll see companies have more challenges, maybe adopting it later, um, maybe because they didn't lay it into their, their strategy earlier. Yeah. And Keith, I think you alluded to it a little bit, you know, in one of your earlier comments. I mean, if you, if you're trying to build a product like growth company and you're just burning too much capital in the beginning and you're not getting enough adoption to, you know, hit that, hit that growth curve that you need to. Right. I mean, it, cause essentially it should be selling itself in the beginning, right? The product is just kind of a product that is addictive. You, you share it with all your friends, but if you're just not getting to that point and you're just burning too much money, you're just going to die very fast. Right. Cause there's, cause it's a freemium model in the beginning, so I think you, I think you kind of hit it um, a few minutes ago, but that's what I would say, right? If they're just yeah. not, if they're not achieving product like growth and they're supposed to be a product like growth company, that's the biggest issue I would say. Um, cool. All right. Uh, looks like we, so I guess Steve, we got a couple more questions and then I think we can wrap up here if that's cool. Sounds good. Um, so Pauline, you got a, You had another question on cold outreach. Um, yeah, sorry. I well, we were we were supposed to continue with a product conversation, but yeah, mm -hmm. back to recruiting. Um, just quick, one quick question on uh, cold reach. Um, because I've heard like nowadays there are more medium and blogs, and obviously like there's more visibility about who's hiring and who's not. But uh, in terms of cold outreach, I've also heard successful cases where people you know sent over a CV, got engaged, and then somehow would land a role. Um, and I'm curious about like, would you suggest that would be an approach? And then following up on that um, for the first tier VCs like Sequoia and, and or, or or companies like that, is this still very important? Like important to to be close to recruiters, uh, like close like to like some headhunt um, versus mm -hmm. like us applying directly. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think that cold outreach is definitely becoming more common. Um, we had, I think two of our diligence associate candidates, um, cold outreach, um, inbound one to myself, one, one directly to one of our investment partners. Um, and, and actually a third, now I think of it that went one right to our, um, VP mm -hmm. uh, all kind of had a different approach. You know, I think, um, to one of our VPs, it was another operator to say, Hey, I saw you made the transition from, you know, operating into venture. I'd love to chat and kind of put it more as a networking conversation and then kind of worked into why, you know, obviously the person came prepared to why they thought OpenView was very interesting. I think use that angle. Um, the other associate came from more of a, a finance background like yourself. Um, you know, came, which is saying, you know, really looking to get into venture, liked the stage space, looked at the portfolio. Um, you know, he actually, I think, I think attached one of his models he did in the past, um, just to say, Hey, I'm, you know, getting much more involved with modeling in my team and the day to day and want to take that and, and move into venture with what I've learned so far. And, you know, the partners are always extremely busy at these firms, but did get his attention. He flipped it, you know, to, to the team and, 
we followed it. So, um, you know, I, I don't know if I would go cold outreach, maybe the, you know, managing partner at Sequoia, but um, I think I would, you know, kind of go through the groups, look at people's backgrounds. Um, I would probably prioritize targeting some of the VPs or principals, people who are kind of in the trenches working with associates um, in their day-to-day, -day, you know, and to try and make those connections. Um, you can also send someone like a LinkedIn request and put a note that you want to connect. Um, we get inbound a lot. And, you know, I think more, more times than not, we're, we're going to respond to, you know, to some degree, um, you know, and, and engage. So I think if, um, you know, you find firms that you're interested in, I, I wouldn't hesitate. That was really helpful. Um, John, you got a question here. Sure. Um, good to meet you, Steve. Great feedback. Um, so one of the questions that I was posing earlier today with uh, to Joe, to Joel, uh, was about the blocks. Right? You want to market yourself. Mm -hmm. That's a way of of, of uh, you know exposing your capabilities, your passion, your abilities. Right. Um, and the question came to, well, how do I differentiate myself from all those 7 million people, uh, that are out there blogging and providing their, you know, uh, they're, they're sharing their thoughts, their expertise. Um, and I did this with edge computing because I wanted to write a blog about edge computing. And I went to Google and I said, okay, let me see how many people are writing about the same thing. So that was the outcome, 7 million people, 7.5 million people. So how do I differentiate myself uh, sharing information? And what does an experienced VC look for in a blog? Obviously, that's going to be part of the assessment, whether this candidate is worth you know, considering uh, based on what he's expressing. But can you share with me a little bit more what would you think is, is most important in a blog? It's a good question. I've recently done some of my first blog posts. I think OpenView does a great job on the content side. Um, so from a talent you know, side of the house, we're getting more involved in developing content. I think if I'm, you know, look, if you're going to be a, someone who's going to get more into the blog side of it and looking to get into venture in general, I think it's specific, you know, diving into something specific. So I think the person, um, one of the person, uh, one of the cans we spoke to, the blog post, one was about product-led growth and having a unique perspective there specifically around one company. So making a case there. So I would try and get as down in the weeds as you can and, and make a position. That's what's going to get a response. There's a lot of people blogging about high level things. And that's probably like the seven of the seven and a half million people saying the same thing over and over again yeah. with a few different words. I think that um, in venture, you see a lot of people do like, s1 teardowns so as different companies um that you've been following a certain space come out with public filings and you can kind of get your hands on that information what are your thoughts on it um you know like confluent just filed for an ipo and you know i saw like already three posts about it from three people who blog and have a lot of followers mm -hmm. all with their own perspective on what those numbers look like what's that going to mean for the space and again i don't think you have to do you know hours of digging into it maybe maybe you do but I think um, it's taking specific examples of something you're responding to versus being like, I'm gonna write a blog about, you know, health tech and why that's gonna be moving forward. I mean, everyone knows that there's a lot of, you know, things going on with health tech. So I think it's taking something specific there, making an argument to it. That's what will grab someone's attention. Mm -hmm. And obviously it's gonna trigger a lot of responses because a lot of people may disagree with you, which is a good thing. So um, for us and looking at, you know, back to what we talked about earlier for candidates, um, we were attracted that someone took a stance on something, had their own opinion on it. Um, and they were able to go deep on why and whether or not that that partner would agree with that, their ability to walk through an argument and then have concrete data to back it up, that jumps out. I see great feedback. So you have to be specific and you have to focus on the argument that you're trying to make uh, based on that specificity, right? Um, the second question I have, which is a very quick one, and I think some of the uh, of my fellow uh, colleagues here have been uh, discussing as well, um, is how do you differentiate good versus bad PLGs, right? Uh, more specific, what is the criteria or the criterions that you leverage to make the decision of a go, no go? 
Go, no, go. Oh man, that is a day-to-day battle in the world of venture. Um, so our deals for the go, no, go, um, a lot of it is where they are in the journey and things we like to see. I mean, a lot of it sounds obvious on the people side, you know, you want to have a founder who's, you know, going to articulate their story the right way, space, why they got into the space momentum, like what was differentiated about the product and where they think they're going to fit into it. Thinking about their addressable market, how big, you know, do they have a really solid opinion on how big it is? Have they done the actual research? A lot of time, those things are all there. Who is that person attracted to the company, whether it be like an advisor? Um, who are they leaning on for advice? You know, are they the only, are they always right in the room? You know, that's never a good sign. Like you want to see them surround themselves with other good talent. Um, if they can't tell their story and attract people excited to come follow them in that story in the company, usually a bad sign. So at least with the companies we're getting involved with, a lot of them around that 30 person mark headcount across multiple teams, a lot on the technical side, maybe starting to build out the go-to-market. Um, you know, who have you attracted so far to the company? I think the CEO falls, that falls a lot in that person or early executives. So seeing momentum there, having a clear idea of like what plans they have in place. Um, so that's all on the people side. A lot of time you are betting on them. Yes. The second is, you know, around more of the numbers, you know, for PLG, I guess, specific, um, it's a great motion and you can get a lot of users quickly, which is fantastic. I think um, churn comes up, like how many of those people or customers or users are you maintaining month to month? Because a lot of, you know, I, I don't know, depending on that kind of where they are from a stage perspective, but um, you can have a lot of users drop, come and go quickly in, in these companies, right? Because it's so frictionless um, to engage. So you want to look for the upward trends in terms of revenue, as well as users and people using your product, right? I think Calendly now has millions. Um, so early days, was it, you know, users going like this and staying like this? And we're having people continuing to sign up and use the product, then getting to more advanced parts of the product and seeing that that customer come through the different parts of the journey um, is key. You know, I think it's sometimes can be deceiving because you can get so many customers or start to drive some real growth because of the you know virality in the product. But is that sustainable? Are you actually sustaining that growth with um, both existing customers and net new customers? Yeah, that was really helpful. Thank you very um, much. Yep. Go I ahead. Be mindful of time. I guess, Steve, you have time for one more question. I guess we got one more from Pauline. Sure. Cool. All right, Pauline. Oh no, that was that was I think you can answer. I was just out of curiosity. Oh. Yeah. Do people actually like VCs or bloggers actually pay for SEO or marketing to bump up their blog posts or get more attention? I'm just curious, purely. Do VCs or people in general? Or like bloggers, you know, because you can you can block yeah. it, but but you know you're it, it, by the well at the time when you're blogging, you're probably still nobody, right? Mm -hmm. Like when yeah. get more attention, do people do it? I'm new to the blogging game. I know a lot of people are blogging a lot at OpenView now. And we have, you know, luckily a really, really strong marketing team producing a lot of our content um, mm -hmm. and going to, you know, ghostwriters or TechCrunch and even a lot on on LinkedIn. I, I wouldn't, mm -hmm. I wouldn't um, you know, sleep on LinkedIn. It people think it's basic. I have my profile on there. This there's becoming mm -hmm. more and more engagement there. Um, I would follow VCPU firms you like. I would follow their content. Um, a lot of things that stand out to us, you would imagine, like we've had people get in with interviews and be like, oh, I saw your blog post or saw this, yeah. you know, I follow this. Um, you know, and, and a lot of the time, these VCs are, or investment firms are producing a lot of really interesting content in spaces, right? So I think, and down to, you know, to specific deal partners there. So I would, uh, I would follow that, but personal blogging. Yeah. I'm sure it's getting crazy out there. I'm sure people are. Yeah, paying I, I found one thing that was also very helpful was a podcast. Cause I feel like I found that a lot of partners have done mm -hmm. some form of interviews and they're all on podcasts. So yeah, I, I yeah. gotta, you know, while I'm on my, I have to promote the open view podcast, Blake Bartlett runs it and he has some extremely impressive, um, people there specific to product led growth. It came up a lot tonight, but um, you know, anywhere from founders and president, um, you know, Jay Simmons from, from Atlassian and 
I mean, you name a product or growth company, um, you know, the top executives been on the podcast and digging into not only the story, but like what made them successful early on when they got investments, what did they use that investment for different functions that were built out. So the open view podcast, um, I'm biased, I think it's probably one of the top ones out there. Sure. Right now. That's great. Yeah. We'll definitely check that out. We'll, we'll pull that up, but yeah, you're right. I mean, I think one, you know, one thing that I would say is, um, just from an SEO perspective, sometimes if you build your blog, like through your website, it's like a tab of one of your websites. If you're doing like SEO on your website in general, I think that should help your blog as well. Cause uh, you know, you got, you know, links kind of tracking back to the site. Um, that's kind of my limited knowledge of, uh, of SEO. So, um, but Hey, you know, I know we're over time. So Steve, uh, thanks so much for, you know, being generous with your time and, and mentoring us and, and uh, sticking around with us for, for the last hour. So really appreciate it. And um, looking forward to hopefully catching you up uh, in Boston or if you come out to New York. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. If anyone ever wants to dive into this more.